Hello, fellow writers! You have found Catherine's Corner of the Scriptariant Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. There be spoilers ahead, so take this into typical consideration before listening on. If you're a writer here for advice, or just a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome, glad you're here. Today we're talking about the YA urban fantasy novel Alice in Zombieland by Gina Showalter. Gina Showalter is an author I have a love-hate relationship with because I love her premises, but tend not to love the final execution of them. We'll talk about that later, but she is an author with strong taste in that she clearly loves boys with tattoos and creating teen drama. So if that's your thing, so will she be too. The premise of this particular book, Alice in Zombieland, which kicks off the White Rabbit Chronicles series, is that zombies do in fact exist, have long infested our world on an invisible plane, and do certain harm, but a certain type of person exists, I think they're called slayers, uh, and they can see and interact with these zombies to fight them. Our main character is one of these slayers, though her father, unlike most, wasn't raised in it, and he was so terrified of what he could see, not knowing what it meant that he died trying to run rather than fight, and this caused him and his entire family to die at these zombies' hands, except for his oldest daughter, Alice. She goes to live with her grandparents and then discovers an entire network of teenagers and adults fighting these zombies, and she's out for revenge. Now, you may expect this book to be an Alice in Wonderland retelling, no one would blame you for that assumption, but it literally has nothing in common with that book besides its titles and its covers and the fact that the main character is named Alice, though she goes by Allie anyway. That's all. There are some big stretches on themes of madness later in the series, and there are little references to, like, white rabbits throughout, but generally speaking, it's not meant to be a retelling, not even an inspired by retelling. So... What's going on with the title? Was it a marketing scheme? Did the first draft originate closer to the classic and then develop out of all the similarities? That can totally happen. Stories change as you write them. If it does, giving a little nod to that origin could be fun as an author, but I don't know. I don't know if that's what happened. There's no real connection by the time you hit the real story. The titles are more pun-like than anything more, something readers can latch onto as familiar and a twist and creative, but not something they're supposed to assume is indicative of the plot at all. And that's annoying if you don't know that going into it, but I would actually let this slide on the basis that this book is legitimately about a girl named Alice living in a world of zombies. So it's accurate, if not also misleading, which is a weird combination. I'm torn on what to say about the title because it works, and yet it doesn't. I guess I think it's kind of cool despite everything. Is it not a great title? I don't know that there's anything fundamentally wrong with copying the format of a classics title, even if your book doesn't much resemble the classic itself. It's certainly memorable and marketable, but it's potentially going to attract the wrong readership if you're not careful, and that seems to be kind of the biggest cause of one and two star reviews on this book's Goodreads page. Anyway, something to consider, titles, but let's move on. I want to talk first about nostalgia and how big a role it can play in our perceptions of the books we read. I read this series just before going away for my first year of college, 
And that was such a cool time in my life. So different and so scary and so wonderful that these books and others I read around that time are just seared into my brain associated with that adrenaline and excitement and angst and fear. All things this book is inherently trying to convey anyway, which was the perfect storm for an emotional connection. When I look back on this series, and this first book in particular, I was so into it because it really fed the idea of change I was experiencing in my own life, albeit far more tragic in the book. But here's the thing, I'm not sure this book actually holds up to the nostalgia I have for it. Did I love it? Yes. Will that change? No, that will not be changing. But thinking back now, I wonder if there aren't some fundamental problems with this book despite how fun it was. And I'll talk about those later, but for now I think what we need to understand as writers is that so much, so much of a reader's perception of our book is going to come from who and where they are in life when they read it. We don't talk about this factor a lot because it's something we can do absolutely nothing about, barring targeting certain aged audiences, though even then not all teenagers experience things in the same chronological order or at all for YA themes to be universal. But I think we should. I think we should talk about it. Because this is one of the fundamental reasons I believe so strongly that a book needs to be good rather than just entertaining. Readers should be able to go back to a book they have strong nostalgia for 10, 15, 50 years later and still feel that quality, still be fed in some way. They should be able to relive that story and remember the excitement rather than catching all the issues they missed at the time. Honestly, this is why I'm personally hesitant to reread very often. I worry sometimes that my initial perception was so wrong that rereading will ruin not just the book, but all of the emotion and experience and nostalgia I have connected to it. So when it comes to our striving as authors, this is a great motivator for us to make our books as absolutely the best they can be. When our stories are quality, they will hit on that entertaining level the first time, creating that nostalgia, and then be able to live up to the nostalgia later. Readers can share them with their children, with their friends, and feel confident in the entertainment value regardless of the stage of life they're in. You can give readers a layered experience reading the book, giving them details to pick up on later and memories to relive fondly rather than attempting to excuse flaws. The younger and less mature someone is, the more mistakes they'll forgive, but they may not always because they will grow, and I want that book to be able to remain a favorite for them regardless of their personal standards. That's why writers need to have a high standard as a whole. Entertainment value is important in a book, I think this is inarguable, but so is quality. I don't think authors should settle for just a career. I think they should care about cultivating that career for readers so that they are the ones ultimately benefiting the most, and this should ultimately be the most rewarding thing for an author if their intentions are sincere, if they care about the quality of their books and the themes of their books and the purpose of their books over like fulfilling just personal ambitions. Personal ambitions are fine, but they shouldn't be the only thing guiding you. By putting in that extra work to make your world solid and fill in all the plot holes and give characters traits that will stand the test of time, that story can really be worthy of its nostalgia. Think of kids' books like Chronicles of Narnia. These books aren't highbrow literature. That's not what I mean when I say quality. They're written simply to be understood by children, but the themes and the characters and the world all hold up, can all successfully feed into a lifelong nostalgia rather than fading once adulthood is reached and standards for good storytelling go up. 
We all have books like that from our childhoods, I would assume. The kind that held up and the kind that didn't. The kind we go back to again and again. The kind that we kind of just leave in the past. As writers, I feel like most of us want to write the first kind. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia tells a satisfying story for both children and adults, and he doesn't do it artificially by being overly simple or safe. He does it through quality. Even his plot holes, like the whole Santa Claus existing thing, are cute and don't take an adult out of the story. Not because children's literature excuses plot holes, but because he's being internally consistent with the talking animals and portal universes. This is debatable, but I think it's all fair, internally consistent. This same principle should be upheld in YA books. Adults should be able to go back to their favorite books from when they were teens and still enjoy them. That starts on our level as their writers, not on their level when they pick up the book. For example, teenagers are probably going to enjoy different tropes than adults, both because of their age and because of the pendulum swing of the market and what is popular at the moment they are a teenager. But all tropes, all trends, all character arcs can be done well. An adult may not seek out as many love triangles as a teenager. They might, but just go with me for the example. But if they enjoyed a love triangle as a teenager, going back to reread that book later and seeing that trope that they may now be over, still done well, will hit hard for them a second time and make for a satisfying second read. Basically, someone's nostalgia and someone's reread should come down to the same details. One, because you can't rely on nostalgia to hook readers when it's their first read. You want your book to grip people in good and bad stages of life. And two, because it's the nice thing to do as an author to give your readers a lifelong love rather than a passing one. Again, what I'm talking about isn't difficult. I'm not saying you need to write your book with every conceivable type of nostalgia in mind and try to hit on life themes for 14-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 30-year-olds all at once so your book will be universally beloved. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you just need to make sure that whatever you're writing whoever you're writing it for, can be appreciated on a story and craft level beyond that in case it ends up hitting a nostalgic level for some readers. That's going to mean honing a style, digging into the details of your characters and world, and being true to your theme. This means eliminating cheesiness and condescension and as many typos as possible. Not eliminating culture of time or place, culture is nostalgic, not eliminating voice, voice is what makes it enjoyable, not even eliminating references or tropes or trends. Time will change and carry that nostalgia with it, but rather by focusing on making it a well-written book and thematically clear or thought-provoking to take that nostalgia with the reader to their adulthood. Now, all that said, I am not saying this book is all bad. It's not. But there are certain details I look back on now and sort of cringe at. The first is how cheesy some of the dialogue is. Some of it is so on point. Kat, she is a great demonstration of this. She is the typical teen, silly and dramatic and yet such a good friend with a good heart and dealing with real issues. She's probably the best character in the whole series. I do love her. There's an exchange she has with Cole, who is Allie's love interest, in which they go back and forth saying, did too, did not, did too, until Cole says, what are we, five? And Kat responds, six, which to this day cracks me up. (laughs) It's great banter. It's a great show of their relationship, and I love it. But then there are also lines like Kat saying to Allie after meeting her like 10 minutes earlier, bad Allie, bad, bad, bad Allie. Eh. 
and I don't know. The the girl enemies will exchange cheesy insults, and there's flirting that comes down to cliches. Some of Allie's internal monologues are hilarious. Some are just too much. It's a really mixed bag. And I wish it had been honed just a little better, because much of the banter between characters is golden. It creates a really strong voice for the story, one that's light despite it being a book about zombies, but some lines just take you out of the book, and I wish they didn't. The second detail that might not hold up is all the teen drama. We are rife with teen drama in this book. I kind of hate that I loved it so much when I read it, but I did, and there's something undeniably fun and cathartic about seeing other people's drama play out. This is not bad writing. It's far more likely to appeal to teenagers than anyone else, but that does not make it bad writing. What's tough about it is that, like the dialogue, it sometimes just goes too far. Unrealistically hot guys liking girls too fast, relationship struggles popping into training sessions or active fight scenes, and is this realistic? Sure, I guess if a bunch of teenagers were put together to slay zombies and forced to create little social groups because of it, they would absolutely infight about boys and petty drama, sure. But is it not cringy when the new girl in town is defensive about whether or not a girl is a boy's ex-girlfriend or not? Is it not just a little strange to focus on whether or not a guy is hot when you're facing down a zombie? just too far sometimes. Fun? Absolutely. Could it have still maintained that fun while sorting some priorities into neater categories? Also, yes. Talking about this is making me remember how much I really loved this book. (laughs) I don't want to nitpick it. But the last thing is the magic or world. It gets a little, I know I'm using this word a lot, cheesy. Ellie defeats zombies by, like, putting a hand over their hearts. I was never quite clear on how or why this worked. And her connection with the love interest is literal. Like, they get visions when they look into each other's eyes. I don't think this is ever really explained either. This is what I mean by cool premise, often bad execution. A lot of mysteries are given to us that ultimately exist just to create the drama, just to push our ships together. And that only works if there is, at the end of it, a satisfying aha reason for it. A real reason that explains their connection rather than excusing it. Otherwise, the romance is just so fast, so primed by this magical connection, that it necessitates some kind of legitimate trial or explanation soon after, you know? I need more than just that. If you've established the romance, we can't linger on it that long. There needs to be more. Not to go too far past book one, but book two did the thing where the couple, for like no reason at all, breaks up just to create more drama, and it's like, oh, he's with this other girl instead, and we're given tons of evidence that that's what's happening so we can be morally outraged until the end when it's all explained away. All of that is really obviously being laid here in book one, too, because we run out of reasons to care about them so fast beyond the lust when their connection is just to be accepted and barely explored. There's drama with Allie and Cole's ex-girlfriend, and then her friends and Allie's friends are taking sides. Ultimately, the best part of the book is yet again Kat and Cole's friend Frosty, who have the cutest back and forth going, but even that can stretch the bounds of reasonable with how they could possibly be breaking up or getting back together again. Drama is something adults can enjoy if it's fair and not repetitive. And so if you're creating drama like this, going for quick, witty banter, 
go for it. This is not bad writing just because it appeals to teens. You just need to make sure you're executing it well and caring about the story first, so all those details will feed into the story rather than taking away from it. This is why sometimes we have to kill our darlings, those lines that are just so funny but don't make sense in the book by the final draft, or that dramatic moment that might be better served by being about zombies than about a love interest. You don't need to take the fun out of it. Just make sure the fun holds up. And I'm not saying you need to write YA books for adults. That's not your target audience. I'm not saying you need to give adults the priority there. I'm saying you need to give teenagers the same kind of quality you would want an adult to have that you would demand as an adult. Teenagers are not imbeciles. They're just a little younger than you. They may love the drama, so give it to them, but take the extra time to test it against beta readers, against time, against whatever you can to make sure it's enjoyable regardless of any kind of nostalgia factor. Okay, what else is there to talk about? Cole is kind of a crappy love interest. (laughs) A little controlling if you catch my drift, except I loved it at the time. Um... I don't want to analyze that too much. Frosty is considerably better because he's so into Cat and makes himself so clear, plus his bad boy behavior is so much more an act than Cole's, and I will admit I loved Cat more than Allie. I did like Allie, but Cat was better. Allie's problem. I don't love this trend where the female main character is said to be so tough and strong because she's sarcastic sarcasm and dry humor don't make a person physically tough. doesn't even make them emotionally tough. It makes them sarcastic. Uh, And if she's attractive or impressive because she doesn't let Cole get to her or give in to him, that's wasted in a first-person book where we can see she is absolutely letting him get to her or giving in to him. (laughs) If she's going to be tough in the sense that she doesn't put up with crap, she can't end up with a love interest who constantly gives her crap just saying, consistency people. Plus, Cole sometimes makes comments about how he's unexpectedly impressed by her or she's unexpectedly tough, but she's not, really. We're just told she is. She's very average, and most people, let alone most teenage girls, cannot beat trained soldiers in combat. That's just not real. She should not be expected to do that or be automatically gifted. Cole's ex-girlfriend spends a lot of time annoyed by how much everyone praises Allie for doing nothing and, like, I actually get it. I, mmm. A little bit of a chosen one thing going on, except Allie's not particularly good at things. It's not like she's artificially good at things. She, she's just considered really special by Cole. So he just ignores that she's not good at things. She is good at some things, but not the things that he typically praises her for. And he has no evidence up front to believe she's competent. There's no real motive for him to defend her as though her mistakes are flukes. There's no reason for him to be attracted to her because of that, because she hasn't shown it yet. Look, sarcastic heroines, I love it. Give me all of them. I even like tough heroines. My absolute favorite are heroines heroines who don't put up with crap from a love interest just because he's hot, who demand they are treated respectfully with teasing, but not by being controlled. The kind that will walk away and actually not give him another thought or the time of day unless he does a full 180, and even then only cautiously. The thing is that sarcastic and tough and taking no crap are not inherently the same personality traits. You can mix and match them. 
You have to show each instead of assuming one because of another. Don't call your main character strong if she's never going to act strong. Just acknowledge she's weak or scared or force her to step up in one big moment. You can give your girl weaknesses. You can have her skills accurately assessed, find her lacking, and still give her a hot love interest. You can have a sarcastic girl who isn't also described as mean when she's not, just to prove the point. Let's please just not oversell this. Underselling main characters and love interests and everyone else is really the better side to err on because readers can then praise them themselves instead of rolling their eyes at every lauding comment. Allie is just not tough or mean. (laughs) She kills zombies by putting a hand over their hearts. (laughs) Why are we pretending otherwise? Just so she'll go well with Cole? She's still interesting, even if she's not this gruff, tough girl. All this is to say, humility really is best, even when talking about fictional people. Cocky characters are fine, but just make sure you as an author have a good grasp of their actual skill sets and make them cocky about those, rather than just their existence in general. Cockiness is otherwise not generally attractive, even in the form of once removed by getting a love interest to talk about it. Rose-colored glasses only work when there's reason to believe those glasses would have been put on in the first place. Like, if she used to be good at something, or if they need her to be good at something. Not because she is also hot. (laughs) On the good sides, we have a lot of great relationships in this story. Allie and her grandparents are fun. All the teenagers interacting with each other and the adults involved when they have to battle zombies is great. There's a secret society concept going on, and the drama connected to that is the best because it is the drama that ties into the main plot. Kat is not one of the slayers, so she's on the outside, and this creates tension. Like, all of Allie's friends who aren't zombie fighters are in love conflicts with the boys who are, so they're all just circling each other all the time, and Allie's in the middle, and it's kind of great. That's drama that holds up. You get the fun girly scenes, and the argument scenes, and the conflict scenes, and they work because they all play into the story's purpose. There's a lot of depth to the characters as well, like Kat, who is also battling, I think it's a liver disease, and Allie is dealing with her family's deaths, and I do think the relationships on all levels were really well done. They're fun, they're what makes this book go round. And a lot of that comes down to this being a very character-centered book. I think the world suffered a little for this in terms of easy answers, but because there is so much drama, the relationships were very rich, and the drama offset against something like a strong familial bond provided some balance. So if you're going for a lot of angsty drama, give your main character someone like Allie's grandparents to go to for a palate cleanser, a friend who's not involved in the drama, or an understanding family member. It gives readers a bit of a break and some understanding for the depth of the character instead of just what's going on verbally. To do drama well, it needs to be focused. This book focuses a lot on romantic tension, and it's fun. I admit I loved it. But because of that, there isn't a lot of drama going on within Allie's family, if I'm remembering correctly. And there doesn't need to be. There shouldn't be. Because... This means we as readers aren't bombarded with tension after tension. We're allowed to focus. It's angsty, and I hated that, but it's also why I was so into it. To avoid cheesiness in your teen drama, I think there are two 
fundamental pieces of advice here. One, provide that palate cleanser to both let the drama simmer in the between moments to really sink in and maximize the angst, and also to let readers know this isn't the characters doing. A person purposefully creating drama is unlikable. Drama naturally unfolding for characters who are trying to avoid it is juicy. So give the character breaks to prove it isn't the norm for them to be saturated in drama. And two, don't use cliches in the traded insults or as the causes of the drama. If someone stole a boyfriend, add depth to why. If someone sabotaged another, make it unclear to outsiders so the conflict is real. For instance, Kat has recently broken up with Frosty because she assumes he was cheating on her when she caught him alone with another girl, but this other girl was actually a slayer and they had been killing zombies, not anything else but he can't explain that to her. So this drama is relevant to the story, but also super dramatic. It's fundamentally a miscommunication, but it's one that's so understandable and driven by Kat's insecurity about her disease that it works. Get creative like this. Avoid the easy drama and go for something just a little different in cause or confrontation, and that will prevent cheesiness. So focus, palate cleansers, and no cliches. That's what I think the key to avoiding cheesiness is. And again, this book does a solid mix of all of the above. So I think it ultimately becomes a good example overall of how to do teen drama well. Does every single line hold up? No. It would be better if it did. But generally speaking, the overarching conflicts that are feeding into this drama are really unique and really good and really world-building relevant. So ultimately, I think it comes around to paying off. All right, I think that's all I've got. The biggest caution with this book going into it is that you don't want to expect it to be dark or Alice in Wonderland related. It's very light, very fun, very teen drama oriented while still having that fantasy element. I think if you know this going in, you'll enjoy reading it. That's part of what helps it bring so much nostalgia to the table. Not only that it matched my mood at the time I was reading it, but also because it didn't bring me down out of that. It was an adrenaline read, not an emotional one. And there's nothing wrong with going for that as a writer, so long as you make sure you're providing balance to the drama and clarity in the world and dialogue. There's really nothing you can do to ensure that your book will become a nostalgic read for a reader. It's going to be so dependent on so many factors, but you can make sure it will hold up to nostalgia and that even if it doesn't come at just that right moment in someone's life, it's still something they can enjoy. So, that being said, thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next page. <laughs>